And you guys see this floating around Facebook. I grabbed this picture. I love uh, <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, right? Uh, we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. But at the bottom, it reminds us of what verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And think about that, guys. We as Christians, this is what we have. We have life in Jesus, okay? There was a debt that needed to be paid. And the wealthy of us, the best of us, we couldn't pay that debt. That's why God had to come and do what he did. The perfect, sinless life lived to be a perfect sacrifice to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. So all that stuff has been paid because of Christ. I hope you rest in that, that you get that. That's gospel. That's truth. That's been the beauty of our study in the book of Romans much needed doctrine teaching for us to understand much so this morning before we jump into chapter seven i want to just take a quick meditation on meditation with you guys because whether we like it or not we are living in a day and in an age where we're, be told, we're being told what to meditate on what to think about um, and specifically how we ought to think uh, and I want to consider with you guys what the Bible says in regards to meditation because there is biblical meditation that we see um, because we are told to set our minds as Christians where? On the things above, okay? But we're so often caught up in the things that are temporal, okay? And that's why we're exhorted. No, you're looking to Jesus. Keep your mind, your eyes on things above. And one way we do that, guys, is we meditate upon the word of God. We're told in the first Psalm, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Uh, sorry, I'm going to pull this back up again. I don't know why the slides are going off. I want you guys to get the references because they're really good. Um, so when we meditate upon God's word, guys, that renews our thinking. Do you guys know that? It actually helps us to know what is right and what is wrong. Uh, but we can meditate biblically when we spend time in God's word. So that's the first one, uh, is taking time to spend in his word. And the psalmist says he delights in the law of the Lord when? You know, day and night. Now, I hope it's a get-to for you guys to spend time in God's word. Like, you actually delight in Like, whoa! You know, I get to spend time in God's word. If you're not to that place, be diligent in God's word because it will, in time, become a delight. You'll be like, whoa, I look forward to this when I wake up in the morning, when I go to bed at night. I love your word, Lord. I love thinking about what you have declared. He wants us to do that. Also, we're called in the scriptures to meditate upon his works. In Psalm 77, verse 11, it says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely, I will remember your wonders of old. So we meditate on his work. Because we're very self-centered, aren't we? Look at all the things I'm doing or I have to do. But we're told as Christians, no, you meditate on what he has done. And that's one thing I love about his word, because how often are we reading the scriptures where God is calling things to remembrance? Remember when you were enslaved in Egypt and I brought you out. You know, there are things that he keeps bringing us back to and he wants us to remember that he is God 
Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is the living God and he is faithful to his promises. He wants us to remember these things and to meditate on what he's done. We just did that by partaking in communion, right? Remembering his life and his death. There's a good thing to remember because that's what it's all about, right? It's about him and what he has done. And then the last thing I want to consider when it comes to biblical meditation is we need to meditate on his ways. It tells us in Psalm 63, verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. You guys have a hard time sleeping where you just find yourself up in the middle of the night? Great. Talk to God. Some of us just like, oh, I just wish I had quiet time where I could just be still <laughs> and talk to the Lord. Well, guess what? When we wake up in the middle of the night, there's times where, hey, I got five more hours of sleep possibility and I'm wide awake, my head's spinning, Lord. Why? Well, you wanted to talk. Here's a moment to be still. Some of the best conversations I've had with the Lord are in those watch nights in the middle of the night. And you just consider his ways, what he's up to, letting him speak to you. You know, it's good to meditate. So I want to encourage you guys, we are bombarded, okay? A lot of noise out there. <laughs> Take time, meditate upon the Lord, allow his word to speak to you. Remember his works, remember his way, think about those things. It's good for us. I just want to share a very short quote from J. Hampton Kethley, he said this, Biblical meditation involves becoming detached from the controlling and hindering influences of the world and attached to the living God through Christ that we might, through faith and transformed values, experience sufficiency of the Savior and reach out to a hurting world in need of the living Christ. And I so agree, guys. If we're caught up on what's going on temporally, if we're looking to ourselves, to the world, what good is that for anyone else? We have Jesus Christ. And if we're meditating, thinking upon him, guess what the overflow is going to be as we go out into this world and we have contact with others in this culture? We're going to have Jesus to share because he is what we've been thinking upon his ways, and we'll be able to share that and live that for others to see and be impacted by. So biblical meditation is a good thing for you and I. I so love that we've been in Romans. I don't know about you guys, but it's given me a lot to think on, <laughs> to be challenged with, to chew on. And for us this morning, it's not going to be any different. Okay, As we get into God's word once again, okay, we are going to be stirred up. And do you guys know that God's word is truth? And you know, when you know the truth, it's going to set you free. Now, I had a pastor recently ask me, it's just like, hey, what discipleship program do you have at church? What book are you using to take your people through discipleship? Because you know, discipleship's a big movement right now. Like, oh, the church should be doing it. Well, it's a mandate in the word of God. Of course we should be doing it. You know, what book are you using? Uh, the Bible? Why? Because it tells us, guys, hey, those who abide in my word are my disciples indeed. And that's why we do take the word of God seriously as Christians. That's why we emphasize it here at Freedom Fellowship. Okay? This is where we are a disciple. What does God say? What does he declare? And when we know that truth, guys, it's going to set us free.
So, we love the word. We believe it's the most powerful weapon on the earth. Actually, it's love. Think about this. We had an elders meeting yesterday, and uh, Joel shared yesterday just how God's been provoking him just in love. And I don't think that's something we ever arrive at as a Christian. It's something we always need to be growing in, really loving. And if we're really loving God and loving others, that is the greatest weapon. But it's a result. Why are we going to love? Well, we love him because he first loved us. How do we know that? It's because of his word. It's what he's declared. And when we know the truth, we're going to be set free from self. And we're going to be able to love him and to love others. And that's what the world is not going to be able to understand. You Christians, you love despite everything else. They will know that we are Christians by our love. You know? So it's one of those things when we take the word of God seriously, uh, we love well. So this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 7. If you haven't turned there yet, we'll jump in. But first I want to take a little hot air balloon ride with you guys. Any of you guys ever get to do a hot air balloon? I want to do it someday. I think it'd be so cool to like fly over the valley really slow and just see the, you know, I grew up here. I know where a lot of things are, but I think it'd be so cool to get the big picture. But I want to do that just for a moment through Romans with you guys, because as we consider the book thus far in chapters three, five, and six, we looked at justification, right? Paul really laid out the apostles, shared what it means for us to be justified as Christians, all that has been accomplished on our behalf of because of what Jesus has done. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul now is describing for us as believers in Jesus the sanctification process. Do you guys know that we're all growing? None of us have arrived. You understand that? None of us are perfected yet. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're born again of the Spirit of God, and He is sanctifying us. He's changing us to become more and more like Him. So chapter 6 of Romans, we saw that we're freed from sin. This morning we're going to get into chapter 7. We're freed from the law. And then I cannot wait to get into chapter 8, because we are free to live in the Spirit of God, which is awesome. But does, does free mean easy? I hope you guys get that. It's not easy. A lot of people think, hey, if I just come to Jesus, everything's going to be great in my life. Your best life now. Read the Bible. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is a cost to following Christ. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Let's be truthful with what the word says. But is the cost worth it? Absolutely, guys. Nothing like knowing your creator, having relationship with him, being able to cry out, Abba, Daddy, to be forgiven of your sins, to have eternal life. It's all worth it, okay? So let's consider our positional freedom that we have in Christ, okay? It doesn't guarantee you or me experiential freedom from our sin nature, okay? We've all struggled with sin we all still struggle with sin and paul through an, an analogy here uh, of slavery that we saw as we went, walked through chapter six he's now going to use for you and i a metaphor of marriage to illustrate freedom from 
the law. So a very simple outline this morning. We're going to see that we, the law, we're, we're dead to it, okay? Um, the law is dead to me. We have a new husband. We have new fruit and new service. And then we're going to see the law. It reveals. What does the law do? It reveals sin. It arouses sin. It ruins the sinner and reflects the sinfulness of sin. So yes, a lot to get into this morning. I'm excited. So let's take a look here. The law is dead to me. So this new husband, verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she was married to another man. So we've not only died to sin, as we saw back in chapter 6, verse 2, but we've also died to the law. So the law has no longer, you know, wields any authority over you or I. Paul laid down this principle of the law exercising lordship over a person only as long as that person lives. Did you guys catch that? And death cancels the law's claims upon an individual. So to illustrate this, he uses this covenant of marriage. A married woman is legally bound to her husband as long as she lives. And no, you can't marry more than one wife. But if she dies, she is free to marry another man or she is released. Now that word release that you see guys there is katagio, to render inoperative or to abolish. So it means she is completely abolished or discharged. So it can be seen in a special thing. I think of a widow or a widower when they remarry right after what does that say to you and I? Marriage has been good to them, right? So they are free to marry another. So the death of the believer took place when we put our faith in Christ and we are identified with the crucified Christ is what we're taught. A scripture I probably reference more than any other is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And there's a reason why. I've been crucified with Christ. You guys understand what that means? I am dead I've died to self. The life I now live, I live by faith in Christ Jesus, okay, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's an identification with death. So if you think about it, if marriage must be based on laws instead of love, what kind of household are you going to have? Unhappy one, right? Legalism kind of stinks. If you have a spouse, it's always, hey, got to do this, this, this. That's just not fun. It's not loving. Who wants to live in that? Okay? There's two men I know personally that really love the law of God. They're in some weird cults living by the law. Their wives in the last couple of years, we're out. Don't want to be married to you anymore. This legalism stinks. That's what the law does, guys. But God's called us to what? A higher law. Love. So, yeah, I went there. <laughs> So we're in bondage, okay, to sin in written regulations. 
law, guys, is our old master. If you do not rightly divide the word of God, you are still going to allow it to rule you. You do not get the gospel. You are not walking in truth. We've been sent free from the law. Now, guys, the law being our old master, so now we're set free to serve what? A new master. And who's that new master? Okay, it's Jesus Christ in the way of the Holy Spirit. So be true to your husband is what Paul is saying here. And who's your husband? It is Jesus Christ. It is Christ Jesus, guys. Which brings us to new fruit now. Therefore, my brethren, verse 4, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So the sinful passions, guys, of our old nature only brought forth fruit to death. So our death to the law and our remarriage to Christ, it gets to bring fruit now forth to God. That's what Paul's saying here, and that's good. And as a result, we produce a harvest of good deeds for the Lord. And that's what we're doing here this morning. When Hebrews 10.25 tells us, do not forsake the assembling together is the manner of some. There is a point, there's a purpose that God has given for us to do what we're doing here this morning. Get together as a church family. And if you read the verse before in verse 24 of Hebrews 10, that you're able to encourage one another and stir one another up for good deeds, good works. And that's what we're doing, guys. We're stirring each other up. We want good fruit for our God. And we get to encourage, we get to serve one another in that way to produce beautiful fruit that honors him, a good harvest. So the purpose of his death, guys, is not to make us a widow or a widower, but that we might belong to another husband. You guys getting where Paul is going, what he is saying here? So our Savior, Jesus, becomes our new husband. Why? That we should bear good fruit. So we are not called upon to produce fruit, but to simply bear it. Well, how do I do that, Pastor? I'm so glad you asked. You can read John chapter 15 later. Okay, We are the branches. Christ is the vine. We abide in him. We just hang with him. We read before, abide in my word. If you want to be my disciples, you are going to abide in my word. And as we abide in him, what he says Fruit's just going to happen, guys. It's nothing of ourselves. We can't produce it on our own. We're just the branches. We're just hanging out with Jesus, and the fruit comes. Let's look at the new service that we now have in verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, we will serve in the newness of the Spirit. This is what we need to grasp this morning, guys. It's no longer serving from guilt, no longer from this have-to mentality, and it's no longer from trying to please Him standpoint. We just get to love Him, walk in the Spirit, and these things happen. Now that brings us now to the law. 
because it reveals, arouses, ruins, and reflects sin. So, believer, do you desire to live on a higher plane? Because the gospel reality, it transcends everything. And I hope we have that desire to what God's calling us to. I mean, he didn't save us to leave us in the muck. <laughs> he, he set us free, you know. He, he's calling us to higher things. But do you find yourself constantly being dragged into the abyss of disobedience by the power of sin? Because there is a struggle. There is a conflict that is a typical Christian experience. Okay? If you don't have that experience going on, that conflict, you're probably not saved. You need to repent and give right with God. Okay? But defeat and despair don't need to be a part of it for us as Christians. The struggle's real, but the defeat doesn't have to be. Why? Well, let's take a look what Paul lays down for you and I here in verse 7. We see the law reveals sin. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. So if the law cannot change us or control us, what is it good for? To reveal sin. That's what the law does. And it does a good job, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. You see the example here of the law for Paul, it revealed covetousness as sin. You see, covetousness is simply craving more than what we already have enough of. Okay? So if you put a stick in a stream, it's going to show you which way the stream is going. And that's the same thing with the law. When it hits our heart, it's going to show us the direction of our flesh nature. Where are we bent? Where is the sin in our life wanting to go? You see, the law arouses sin, we're told in verse 8 here. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me. Okay, again, this is the great apostle Paul. He's one of my heroes, okay? Mighty man of God and stuff. It says here, it produced in me an evil desire for apart from the law, sin was dead. Literally, guys, taking opportunity or it's, it was the starting point. So if we consider a base in the military, okay? Operations, okay? For, for all things come from there so paul knew when it comes to sin that sin had a base camp okay in our souls which constantly is carrying out missions against us and it's hard fighting an enemy on their soil wouldn't you agree okay and that's where the battle's taking place but it's even harder to fight when there's hidden terrorists in your own country okay and such is sin a hidden terrorist is hard to spot because they are hard to identify. They blend in with the rest. Okay? They don't have special uniforms that stick out. Okay? And they do their best to remain hidden. 
okay? Spread all over the world. And then we hear of sleeper cells, right? We have these uh, sleeper cells, which means that they are lying dormant. They are in waiting, right? Standby. And on purpose for them, these groups, they simply blend in. They remain undetected until they're told to carry out an attack. So our sinful nature, it lurks in our souls, and it's easily identifiable, right? It remains hidden. It spreads through our minds, our souls, our bodies, and it lies dormant on standby, and it remains there undetected until it carries out an attack against us and others. So Paul learned that the law even aroused evil desires in him. And I think, wow, <laughs> if something as holy as God's law, right, verse 12, okay, can arouse sinful desires, what wickedness must we have? Do you guys get this? So can your conscience relate to these thoughts? You guys ever watch the TV show? Okay. Adultery, it's wrong. But man, these two really love each other. Even though they're married, they are such a better fit. And we find ourselves rooting for them. Yeah! Hook up! Make it happen! Be in love! That's adultery! Where is that coming from? How about the Christian? You know, talking with their fists. It's not what God's called us to do, but man, can he fight? Go for it. You see, we know unmistakably that knowing God's law, law, it arouses these sinful desires, okay? But this is also what gives the characteristic of transgression. You, saw, you see, the law brings out the worst in us, right? But the love of Christ Love brings out the best in us. And these two, they're at war. So Paul tells us in verse 9 that the law ruins the sinner. It says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. So sin deceived me. Let me say that again, guys. Sin deceives. But it feels so good. It feels so right. Sin's fun for a season. Sin deceives us. You see, the trouble with trouble is it usually starts off with a whole lot of fun, doesn't it? I've literally counseled hundreds of people who are alcoholics. They are addicted to alcohol and it's ruined their life. Not one of them has ever told me, hey, I really wanted to be an alcoholic in life. I remember having that first beer and thinking to myself, I want to be an alcoholic. No. Sin always starts off fun, guys. But we reap what we sow, and sin is destructive. You follow it through. You see, guys, um, the law reflects. Look at verse 12. 
The law reflects the sinfulness of sin. Therefore, the law is holy. Catch what he's saying. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Okay? And yet it reveals sin, right? We saw in verse 7. It provokes sin in verse 8. And it results in what? Death. So, what does this bring to light concerning the character of sin? (laughs) Wow, it's powerful, (laughs) right? Let's not joke around. Sin is a powerful thing. So, is our problem a law problem or a nature problem? It's a nature problem. Example. Here, you guys have probably been wondering what Pastor Landon's doing with some cocaine up on the stage. That's why my wife asked me, well, you got a bag of Coke this morning. I'm like, babe, it's baking soda. So, we got baking soda here, okay? It is still, have you guys seen it jumping around, moving? It's been pretty quiet. It's just been sitting there this morning, not doing much, okay? It's still until another substance is added. Now, I only have a little bit of vinegar left here because we went a little crazy first service. Um, But what happens when I pour in the vinegar? And we're going to have this represent the law, okay? Well, it's going to start to smoke a little bit, right? Bubble a little bit. Oops, sorry. (laughs) Anyways, it smells a little bit too, okay? But it's not from the vinegar. Do you guys understand this, okay? It's from the nature of the baking soda, which will not endure it. Thus, it's showing us, guys, the law is not at fault. Our nature is the problem, okay? So, I went to Bible college in Southern California. Um, They have ocean there. And I'm a white kid from the Midwest who wants to surf. I never really surfed. I tried surfing. I'd fall in a lot. Uh, Friday nights, we'd go down to Oceanside, and we'd preach the gospel on the streets. And we'd seen people get saved. It was awesome. But it was a beautiful SoCal day. The weather was perfect. We had classes. My buddies were like, we should go surfing and skip school. Yeah, we should. (laughs) So we went down to the beach, and we get there, and there's a sign no swimming, sharks in the water. What? I'm skipping school to go surfing and we can't even go in the water. Now, was it the sign's fault or the person who put out the sign? No, I should have been grateful. I'm a big white kid from the Midwest who can't stay on the board. I'm falling off the board into the water where the sharks are. I should be grateful for the warning, right? Right. So the law is like the sign, guys. The essential, we should be grateful, you know, but it doesn't get rid of the sharks, does it? The sign can be there, but so are the sharks still. But we are grateful for the warning, and that's what the law does. One more example, you know. Rob, you probably hate this. I don't know if you've ever put out, Rob's a painter, okay? Wet paint. You ever put those signs out so people know? Yeah, what do we do when we see that wet sign? <laughs> really? <laughs> Is that what we do? <laughs> oh. Or how about what signs, traffic signs, do you guys not like? What are the worst ones when you see them? You're just like, detour, right? Because there's a lot of unknowns with detours. 
How long is this going to take? Really? I see other people going through. <laughs> Should I? Ozzy said during first service, I don't like 25 miles per hour signs. <laughs> Amen, brother. None of us do, right? We want to be on the move. The ones that get me the worst, though, are those U-turn signs. You know what I'm talking about? You drive around and you go, oh, I missed my turn. I got to turn around. Sign, no. And you're looking around like, no cops, no one else. I could just turn around right here. But isn't that our nature, guys? How many of you guys have read uh, Augustine's Confessions, little bitty book? Okay, it is a book all Christians should pick up and read at some point. Phenomenal little read. But St. Augustine, uh, page 29 in that little book, you know, he, he said that he stole pears from a pear tree and he didn't even like pears. Why did he do it? Because it was forbidden. That's our nature, guys. That's how sinful we are. And I want us, brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus, Freedom Fellowship Church, I want us to be real, raw, authentic, genuine, honest Christian. We want to live it. We want it to be real. But we got to be real with what God says concerning our nature the law some of us try so hard we want to be those beautifully painted polished christians look at me i got it all together you know ask a lot of you guys when you walk through the door hey, how you doing good 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 i'm good i'm good how you doing uh, we can't all be good do you guys understand there is life if we're all good all the time then the word of god's lying or you're lying and I'm going to bet on you, right? The reality is, guys, most of us are chipped saints, okay? There's, there's flaws. Uh, and that's why I love the rest of Romans 7 here, uh, because I think for us who are willing to be raw and honest, this is so authentic and so real that we can relate this is a very passionate uh, section of writing by the Apostle Paul. And I want to encourage you to please experience, okay, uh, what's being laid down here in the trying to live up to God's standards. Let's be real this morning in that. Feeling of being disheartened or frustrated. It happens, and it happens to good Christians, even super Christians like my hero, the Apostle Paul. Of course, Jesus is my hero hero. But humanly speaking, I mean, this guy was like the apostle of the apostles, right? Super missionary man. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's the dude. And what I love about him, even though he did all these great things, he is honest. And he lays out, here's the real struggle, the real life of a born-again Christian. So there's a confession that is made in verse 13 where we get to see the great apostle in his frustration. But what I want us to catch, that frustration is twofold. So let's catch this in what he says here. Verse 13, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. 
But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, and what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So he doesn't do what he wants to do, we're told, and he does the things he doesn't want to do. This sounds like some kind of strange Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Christianity going on here. Like, what's going on? But here's the key that we need to catch. When a believer tries to live a life pleasing the Lord in their own, on strength he will fail every time and that failure makes him what ready for god's grace and aren't you guys thankful i sure am i want us to note guys he moves from uh now to the first person singular did you see that in verse 13 me so this is paul's real day-to-day struggles in his experiences And yes, he is saved at this point. There's some false teachers out there teaching that, hey, once you come to Christ, you don't sin anymore. You don't have these struggles if you have real faith. They're a false teacher. Paul was saved here. This is the reality of the Christian life. Now, how pompous for Christians who say they don't struggle with the old nature anymore, okay? Um, Don't you struggle (laughs) with the same problem daily? I sure do. I get what Paul's saying here. See, desiring to be that good Christian, yet totally frustrated from falling on our face. So verse 13, okay, if we see in verse 12, it saw the law as being good. So here, sin is bad. And from verses 7 to 25, we have this relationship that is redeemed, uh, redeemed person, sin, nature, in the law. Like, how are these working together? Okay, sin, exceedingly sinful, we're told. So why didn't he just call it exceedingly dark? Or why didn't he call it exceedingly horrible or exceedingly dead or horrid, hideous? Because we need to call sin, sin, because that's its name. That's the only thing that can really describe what it is, okay? Because there's nothing as bad as sin. That's why we call it by its own name. That's why I have a hard time when one of the largest churches we have in America says sin's not on the menu here. And when they talk about sin, they'll refer to it as a cancer or a sickness. No, sin is exceedingly sinful. It's sin. And that's why God calls it sin. And that's why we should be honest and real and call it sin also. Now, let's take a look at verse 17 here because we see the corruption. He realizes the total corruption of his old sinful nature here. It says, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but to perform what is good, I do not find For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but evil, the evil I will to do, that I practice. 
Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So wait a minute, is Paul trying to avoid personal responsibility here? What's going on? What are you saying to us, Paul? No, he's speaking about this base desire, not the action itself, okay? But that base desire. He's not saying he does not do it, but that it's not what his deep inner self, okay, who's been regenerated, renewed by Christ, the born again of the Spirit of God, wants to do. So verse 21, evil is present with me, he says. So the more we grow in Christ, the more aware we are of our sin and the more we hate it and the more we want to get rid of it. I can tell you guys today I feel more sinful than I ever have in my entire life. And this has been my reality in my walk with Jesus through the years. You guys could come and hang out, live with me for a week, and you might be like, hey, bro, (laughs) you're living a pretty good Christian life. Everything you're doing seems to line up with a Christian man. You guys don't see what's going on in my heart, in my head. See, the closer we get to Jesus, guys, the more we see our sin. The more we see him, we see his holiness, and he is holy other. He's so other, guys. He is so holy, holy, holy. And the more we're in the light, the more that light's going to reveal darkness. And we all have darkness. We all have sin, guys. That's why the prophet Isaiah He said, woe is me. I'm undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So when did Isaiah get undone? When he's seeing God. I see the Lord. I'm a mess. That's what happens when you get close to God. I see this in. We see Job, righteous dude in the Bible, right? Even God said, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's the man, right? Well, what did Job have to say? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What? Yeah, I see the Lord, and what is that going to do to me? It's going to make me a whore myself. That's what happens. And that's why we Christians struggle with what Paul struggled with. That's why we hate that sin nature. (laughs) Even the revelator, John, said, When I saw him, what did he do? I fell down as dead nothing in me i got nothing you are god almighty i'm sinful lord teach us to love what you love lord teach us to hate what you hate that has become a daily prayer of mine for i don't know how many years now because i know my desire why why am i drawn to sin why 
because that's such a temptation. Lord, those are things that you hate. Help me to hate those things. But it has to be replaced with something. That's why I always pray, Lord, help me to love what you love. That needs to be foremost. Because if I'm really loving what you love, this sin stuff, okay, it's not going to matter as much. But the reality is it's still there. There's a conclusion that Paul takes us to in verse 21, 22, and 23 because he understands the struggle within him. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me in the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind in bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So the old nature is attempting to do wrong, but the new nature is attempting to do right. So the principle Paul here is recognizing, okay, is that man has two natures. And we need to understand that, guys. One delights in the law of God, and the other wages war against the law of God. So this refers to everything within us that is morally loyal to the world and to self and not to God. You see, we need to remember, guys, these inward conflicts, they show us that we're spiritually alive. It's good to have these conflicts. If you don't have these conflicts, you're not born again. You're doing what king self wants to do. You're doing what the world is telling you to do what the king, the God of this age, Satan, is telling you to do. There is no conflict. But when you're born again of the Holy Spirit, man, now that's life. It is all conflict until the day we die. I mean, isn't that the thing we look forward to? Yeah, I can't wait to see Jesus. That's going to be the best part of finally passing on from this life to the next. I cannot wait to see him face to face. But I'm also really stoked to be done with the sin nature all the struggle, all the conflict, finally to be gone, just to be known as he knows us and to know him back and to love one another. You guys know that we're going to be with our brothers and sisters in heaven and we just get to love each other perfectly? You don't have to judge me anymore. It's going to be wonderful. We just get to love each other. And that's what's set before us. But this struggle is very real. So it shows us that there is some life in our soul that hates sin. So the real question, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Did you guys catch the who? Okay, will deliver me from the body of death. Okay, it isn't asking, what must I do? So many people call me up, hey, pastor, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm addicted. I can't stop. I know it's wrong. I repent. And I do good for a while. Then I'm doing it again. What must I do? There's nothing you can do is what I say. What do you mean there's nothing I can do? Just tell me what I can do. Look to Jesus. Because it's who will deliver me. It is him. He is Savior. You can't save yourself. It's going to be him. But I want to do it. I got to get it figured out. And once I have it figured out, then 
Then I can live for the Lord and do what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. No, it's never going to come. It's never going to happen. You need to humble yourself. Get on your knees. Be broken before God. Look to Jesus. He is Savior. It's the who will deliver me. Who? Jesus. So deliver me. Paul was not attacking his sin. His sin was clearly attacking him. You see what's happening here? So he wasn't like a soldier who was leading an attack. He was a soldier who was asking to be rescued from the hands of the enemy. He's pinned down and he's calling for air support. I need help. We need some saving. So sometimes, guys, sin flies at us like a lion out of the jungle bush. You guys ever have that happen? Man, things are good. Morning devotions were rad. I'm praying. I'm in the spirit today. I get to go serve the Lord. And whoo! Sin comes out of nowhere. Where is that temptation coming from? Why does that happen? Why is that in our nature? Guys, I think sometimes Satan and his minions hate that we are the children of the living God. It's essential spirit living within us. Now, I want us to grasp, again, context. What is Paul getting at? What is he showing, teaching us here? God wants us to get that there are three things that don't in themselves stomp out sin. Did you guys catch in verse 9? Knowledge of what the law demanded. Oh, you can know the law. In words and out. You could even be one of those who've memorized the Torah. Yeah, all first five books of the Bible. You can have it down. Verse 9 says, that ain't going to help. Ain't going to do it. Well, how about self-determination, verse 15, from sin? I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to have all of this accountability in place. I'm going to remove everything, no provision of the flesh. Maybe I'll have to live in my basement and stare at my belly button, then I won't get in trouble. No, that ain't going to do it either. Well, how about a profound Christian experience? Man, I met the Lord. I'm set free. Everything's good. That's going to carry me through. Not according to verses 22, 23, 24, and 25. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what he says. Or wretched Christian man that I am. This isn't talking about a sinner. No, this is talking about the redeemed. Those who've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Us Christians. Wretched men that we are. Wretched, that means miserable, distressed, condition. So Paul at the end of himself. I picture this just as John the Revelator wrote there uh, to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is a church. This was their mindset. We got it together. Okay? We're the church. We're Christians. We have it. Okay? And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That is Jesus speaking. You don't know this. You're wretched. And yeah, that was a church. So Paul has come to the end of himself here, which I think is a great place to be. None of us want to do it. That doesn't sound pleasant. 
but it's good. It's needed. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the bankrupt, blessed are the wretched. And there's only one answer, guys. You know this? Only one. Thank God. Thank God that the answer is Jesus Christ, right? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. So what two things then are needed in this battle? A deliverance from condemnation, which the law of God has pronounced, right? There's a power within greater than that of sin that will enable us to do the will of God. And both are provided in Christ, guys. He is the answer. And as we're going to see in chapter 8 next time, which, by the way, is my favorite chapter in the Bible, so you will not want to miss when we're in Romans chapter 8. But we see there, guys, if we consider Romans 7 this morning, there's been a lot that's been laid out for us. It doesn't provide a complete picture of Paul's spiritual experience. In fact, it's preparing us students, readers of this letter for chapter 8. It sets the stage for the triumph of chapter 8. And we recognize our inability to live up to these deepest spiritual longings we have, and it leads us to cast ourselves upon him. Okay? God's spirit, his power, his victory. So the Holy Spirit within us helps us to do what God wants us to do and to be what he wants us to be. It is all by the Spirit of God. And that is the beauty of Romans chapter 8. So you guys have permission to please read ahead, dive in, soak it in. It's the only entire chapter I've memorized in all of the Bible. It's that good. You guys know the Bible, in, in Romans so far, the Spirit of God's been mentioned once. 32 times we're going to see it mentioned in chapter 8. And that is our life. Apart from his Holy Spirit, we got nothing, guys. We're not born again. <laughs> we have no help. Okay, We don't have life. The law brings death. The Spirit brings life. And Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. And that is not going to happen unless we are in the Spirit of God, living in it, on it, and through it. So we keep our relationship with Jesus through the Spirit alive, fresh, right? Exciting. And what does that do? It produces righteousness instead of wretchedness. That's how we do it, guys. So becoming like Jesus, it is a long process. Some of you guys are a little older. Some of you guys have been in the Lord longer than I have. It's a process, isn't it? None of us arrive this side of heaven. Okay, We are a work <laughs> until all said and done. Um, so Paul, you know, this is why Paul likens Christians' growth to uh, a strenuous race, okay, or a tiring fight. He uses that language in his letters because it is long, right? Sanctification is a gradual process, repeatedly taking a believer through this reoccurring uh, sequence of failure, which brings us back what? To depend upon Jesus, not self, upon Christ. And through that, 
triumph of his, we guys get the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So the Christian battle, the Christian has a, we all are in a battle. We need to recognize that. The war's already won. You guys understand that? Victory's done. But the battle is very real. The struggle is just part of the journey. Now I want to close this morning by sharing a quote by an evangelist. How many of you guys have heard of D.L. Moody before? Love the guy. Based out of Chicago land. Um, yeah, God used him uh, to bring many to the Lord, which, by the way, wasn't always the case in his ministry. The people in his church, a bunch of older gals, sisters in the Lord, began to pray specifically for him in the ministry. DL's you know, approach to ministry, what he was doing, didn't change. God's people began to pray, and people started getting saved like crazy. You know, wouldn't it be cool if we just saw people starting to get saved? I wonder why revival doesn't happen. <laughs> you look throughout church history, God's been faithful. There's been many, many, many revivals throughout the entire world. But there's one common thread with every revival that's ever happened. The people of God, even though it may be a smaller group, they were in prayer. They purposed to pray and they began to pray into God to move in such a way. Wouldn't it be cool if we got over ourselves and stopped praying about all our stuff? Because isn't Jesus coming to the world to save the lost? I don't know about you guys, there's a lot of lost out there. Maybe we should spend more time praying for that. Anyways, I want to share a quote by Dale Moody's The Point. <laughs> he said this, When I was converted, I made this mistake. I thought the battle was already mine, the victory already won, the crown already in my grasp. I thought the old things had passed away, that all things had become new, and that my old corrupt nature, the old life was gone. But I found out after serving Christ for a few months that conversion was only like enlisting in the army, that there was a battle at hand. There is a battle at hand, brother and sister. And I'm so glad that Paul was raw and real and shared this truth with us in Romans. It is freeing for the Christian. I think you guys are going to find yourself coming back to this chapter often personally. This morning my dad was at first service and he's like, this is a chapter I've read over and over and over again over the years. Guys, the battle is real, but Jesus is the answer. And that's what I love about the word of God. It points us to him. So Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for truth, how it does set us free. God, we're all just a bunch of chipped saints here. None of us have it all together. Lord, we are what we are by your grace. And we're so thankful that despite us, Lord, uh, you still continue to do, to work, to keep us, to chasten us, to spank us when needed, Lord. But you also patiently love us, even in the correcting. And this morning, I think a lot of us have been corrected. And you've done it in love and truth and by your spirit, and we're thankful for that. But we simply have one desire, and is that... <laughs> It's that we'd be a chip off the old block. God, we want to be more and more like you. That's what you've asked of us. That's what you're calling us to. And I know as we hang with you, we'll be more and more like you. So please give us the grace to do so. 
We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. So closing thought for this morning, you guys may be like, hey, pastor's wearing a t-shirt again. Yeah, I like t-shirts. Got this one from my sister. Um, it says, it's not about the dad bod, I can testify. Um, it's about the father figure. It's about the father figure. And this is, it's Father's Day 2021. I just want to encourage you dads, okay? In light of Romans chapter 7 this morning, this is the one thing I see dads lack. I see it's the one thing that I really lack in being a father to my kids because I want them to know Jesus. They've come to faith, which I love. But I want them to see that, hey, dad has real struggles. I love Jesus, but I'm going to fall. But what does a righteous man do when he falls? He gets back up again and he looks to Jesus. He loves Jesus. I want to encourage you dads. None of us have it all together. None of us are a perfect dad. But the best thing we can do for our kids is be a father figure that loves Jesus. Hey, my dad's a real man. He has temptations. He has struggles just like I'm going to have in my life or am having. But I want to be like my dad because he's looking to Jesus. He's repenting. He's being honest when he does fall. He gets back up and he keeps trusting. He keeps following Jesus no matter what. That's the biggest thing, parents, that our kids need from us more than anything else. Amen? Amen.